one other thing while you're turning there. It dawned on me that everybody that's going to camp is here tonight. And so if we can have five minutes after the service, we're going to practice our song. We're going to be singing at camp um, probably the night that Pastor Kimbrough preaches. But if we can, just five minutes, uh, we're going to be singing I Wait for the Lord from the supplement. So we'll stay and practice that together. So you young people... um, Please stay for just a little bit and not to keep you long. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read just one verse. Uh, Our brother Ben, in his praying tonight in the pre-service prayer time, mentioned the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. And we're going to look at one of those. The book of Ephesians opens with... A list of what I believe you can enumerate 14 individual specific spiritual blessings. We're going to look at one. Um, We're going to look at the biggest one, but we're going to look at one. And so I just want to read verse number seven, and that'll be our Bible reading for tonight. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Amen. Let's seek the Lord in prayer. Our Father, tonight, as we focus specifically on this theme of redemption, we ask for your help, especially as tonight we have set aside for us the Lord's table. As we come tonight to focus our attention on what it is for Christ to be broken for us and what it all means for his blood to be shed for us. We pray that you would help us to understand afresh what it is to have redemption through Christ Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject this evening is redemption. We're going to be covering what I hope for all of us here, is very old ground. I trust that everything that we look at this evening is in one sense old news. But I trust that by the Lord's Spirit in our hearts, we don't treat it as old news. There is a temptation, obviously, when you come to such familiar themes to, oh, I've heard that before. Oh, I've heard that before not really focus in, but the message of the gospel is a message that we need to be brought back to over and over and over again. I was having a conversation with some people not too terribly long ago, and the subject of gospel preaching came up, and we were batting around just among ourselves the popular idea that exists among some that The gospel is for lost people, and once you get people saved, then what you need to do is you need to preach to them those more practical things. You need to preach to them of how to have a good marriage, and how to manage your finances, and how to raise your children, and how to get along in various relationships, and you you deal with all those practical, you know, 
Christian living type topics. <coughs> and so that becomes the really the bulk and substance of the pulpit ministry. And every so often there is a gospel sermon. Every so often there is uh, the presentation of Jesus died for your sins, you need to repent and believe the gospel type preaching. Well, I think we all, thankfully, in this congregation understand that that really is a wrong perspective. That really is not the right way to view the gospel. The gospel is for lost people, of course it is. But the gospel is for all of us every day. How can we have good marriages apart from the gospel? How can we rear our children apart from the gospel? I would go so far as to say, how can you manage your finances apart from the gospel? How can you do any of these things? How can you do anything that involves Christian living without an understanding of the gospel, the sum and substance of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners? And so we come this evening to this theme of redemption. Redemption really is the big umbrella, the gospel of redemption, God's plan of redemption. It really is the big umbrella that underneath sits all of their various parts of the gospel that we parse and discuss. Election, predestination, effectual calling, justification, sanctification, glorification. What we refer to in theological terms as the ordo salutis. It all fits under this big umbrella of redemption, God's plan of redemption. But in a more narrow sense, redemption refers to the work of Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood for the purpose of paying the ransom price to redeem his elect from their estate of sin and misery. That's what redemption is. Redemption is the work of Jesus Christ in saving sinners. So we dive right in. First of all, I want you to see the need for redemption. And this is not going to be any earth-shattering news to you, but the need of redemption can be summarized really in just one word. And you all already know what it is. It's the word sin. It's because of sin we need to be redeemed. We need redemption. When God created Adam and Eve, they were in a perfect relationship with God. But what happened when Adam sinned was he lost that standing that he had with God. This morning, I mentioned to you briefly that Latin phrase, passe pecare et non passe pecare, that Adam was able to not sin, but he was also able to sin. And he did sin. But yet after the fall, Adam and all those that come from him by natural generation are not able to not sin. All we're able to do is sin. But when Adam and Eve sinned, when Adam's sin, uh, when Adam sinned, that relationship that they had with God was destroyed. It was broken. It was fragmented into pieces. And the justice and the holiness of God required that he punish Adam and Eve for their sins. The wages of sin is death. 
And God had entered into a covenant. And the terms of that covenant were clear. You do this and you live. You do the other thing and you die. And they ate of the forbidden fruit. And indeed, they shall surely die. And so death was the penalty of that transgression. But when Adam and Eve sinned, not only was that relationship that they had with God destroyed, but they became totally corrupt. This is where we, in Calvinistic terms, speak of total depravity. It does not mean that a man is as totally depraved as he has the potential of being. We all have neighbors that would, you know, colloquially, you know, they give you the shirt off their back. They're just good folks. They're they're good people. Never darken the door of a church, but they're, they're quality, moral human beings. But yet they're totally depraved. Because in mind, will, and emotions, what the sinner does is not for the praise and the glory of God. Though charitable they may be, though nice, though kind, outside of a redeemed heart, it's corrupt. All of our righteousnesses are but as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. And so Adam and Eve became corrupt, and that corruption was passed to all men. And they fell under the wrath and the curse of God. God's punishment and the outpouring of his wrath upon them was not an immediate physical death, mind you, though they did die physically. But there was a spiritual and an eternal death that was cast upon all men, for that all have sinned. The Westminster Catechism uses very vivid language here. It refers to Adam and Eve's position after the fall as an estate of sin and misery. It's miserable to be a sinner. It's, it's miserable to be outside of Christ. One has no hope. One has no prospect of eternal glory. They may, but it's merely a figment of their own imagination. They think as long as they're good enough that surely a loving God would overlook all the bad things that they've ever done. And surely they're good enough to get to heaven because they're not nearly as bad as the other guy. But it really is just a pipe dream for them. It really is just a figment of their own imagination that it's well with their soul. When reality, it's not. This is the best they'll ever know. They are whether or not they realize it in that estate of sin and misery. And unless a man is redeemed out of that estate of sin and misery, then hell is his home. And that's all he has to look forward to. It never will get any better. They're never able to pay the debt that they owe. If you're outside of Christ, if, you, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, then you are under the wrath and curse of God. The Bible says it very clearly, you are condemned already. It's not that you will be condemned at the final day. You are condemned already if you are outside of Christ. And this is the need that you have of redemption. It's because of sin. It's because death has passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And so we need to be redeemed. But the second thing 
about redemption as the means of redemption. And the verse states it very clearly. And in one sense, we can say that Paul is just repeating himself here because Paul has, has told us this means over and over again in other places. The means of redemption stated there in verse 7 is through his blood. We have redemption through his blood. As we come to the Lord's table, the communion time, one of the aspects that we focus on is the shed blood of Christ. That is the means of our redemption. But I say Paul's repeating himself because other places he said the same thing. Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified freely by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Colossians 1.14, a repetition exactly of Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. And then in Hebrews, if you take the Apostle Paul to be the author there, 9 verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. Speaking of, of Christ, that great high priest, by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The means of our redemption is the shed blood of Christ. And you know the illustration of it. You know the foreshadowing of it. I've preached this many times. Pastor Kimbrough has preached this many times. You've heard this many times. That we see the picture of it even way back in the garden. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they, in their efforts to cover their shame and the, the guilt of their nakedness, they sewed fig leaves together. And even that, they understood, didn't work. And they went and they hid themselves. And when God came, it was very quickly evident that those fig leaves were not going to be sufficient. And so God made them coats of skin. And we have the first foreshadowing in Scripture of the shedding of blood necessary for the covering of sin and shame. And like Hebrews 9.12 tells us that Animal blood can't make an atonement. Animal blood can't pay that price. In the Old Testament, it was used only as an illustration. It was used only as an object lesson of what the real thing would be. But in Hebrews, it's made clear to us that the blood of an animal is not sufficient because we're not animals in that sense. We don't have anything to do with animals. It wasn't an animal that sinned that cast us into our estate of sin and misery. It wasn't an animal that caused the fall of man. 1 Corinthians 15.21 fits here and explains what I'm trying to say. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. And so it, it could never be the blood of an animal that could obtain our redemption. The only one who could have redeemed us had to have been a perfect man. Because, again, we, we I don't want to get bogged down in the message of Hebrews, but in Hebrews, the writer there tells us that an ordinary priest, a, a normal sinful priest, the best he could ever do, which he couldn't do, but the best he could ever do, is atone only for himself. He would not be able to atone for an entire race of humanity. 
It required the blood of a man to pay the price of our redemption, but not just the blood of any man. A sinner couldn't do. It had to be only the perfect God-man. And that's why some theologians go so far as to say, and some cringe at the statement, and and some draw back from the statement, but I, I say it as what I believe to be truth. In reality, it was the blood of God himself that was required to pay the price of our redemption. Who is the only redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God was made man, and so continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. It was Christ, the eternal Son of God, God himself, who became man. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And it's Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who paid the price of our redemption. That's the means of our redemption, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But what are the objects of that redemption? And this is an important important point for us to make, because who is it that is redeemed? In whom we have redemption through his blood. Who is that we? Who's Paul talking about there? Is Paul talking about all of humanity? Has all of humanity received redemption through the blood of Christ? Well, the short answer to that question is no, they have not. We do not believe in universalism. We do not believe in in that doctrine. And some will counter that by saying, well, yeah, no, obviously we don't believe in universalism. We don't believe that everybody's going to go to heaven. But they teach that the shed blood of Jesus Christ did earn redemption for everybody. But it's left up to that person to only believe and accept that free gift. And if they would believe and accept that free gift, then they have redemption. Well, let me counter that with an illustration. I've used this illustration before in Sunday school when we were going through uh, the, the longer series of Sunday school lessons that I did on the gospel of your salvation. But let me give you the illustration this way. Imagine that I stole a million dollars from a bank. I went in under the cover of darkness, the little black hood, the whole thing. And I stole a million dollars. And I was caught. I was brought before the judge. And I was given a prison sentence and... Part of my, part of the adjudication of the judge was that I had to pay back the entire sum of money. I couldn't do that. Well, now let's say that, unbeknownst to me at the time, a relative comes to the judge. And that relative says to the judge, I will pay the entire debt that Derek goes, and you let him go free. And let's say that in that scenario, the judge says, okay, I'm agreeable to that. I will receive your payment as if he paid it himself. And the money's transferred, everything's done, the judge signs off on it, it's finished. 
And now I come back before the judge. And the judge tells me that a relative has come and paid my debt. And now I'm a free man. Well, I would object to that judge. Because I would say, you have to be mistaken. I have no relatives with a million dollars. And that's impossible. There's no way that that has happened. I do not believe what you're telling me. I don't believe it. I reject what you have just said about someone paying that debt. Now, where do we stand? What's the judge to do? Is it just, now that the judge has already signed off on it, is it just, is it right, is it holy for that judge to put me back in jail? Well, no, he can't put me back in jail because I've been cleared. He signed off on it. It's cleared. So we put that illustration in spiritual terms and we have to answer the question, if Christ paid the debt for every man's sin and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God in essence signed off on it, by raising him from the dead, then why is anybody in hell? Christ either paid the debt or he didn't. He either paid for man's sins or he didn't. The simple and straightforward answer is that Jesus Christ did not pay the debt for everyone. Now that's hard for some people to take. But the truth is, he paid that ransom price. He paid that debt for those who are his. For those who are his people. For those he came to save. Matthew 1.21, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we understand clearly from Scripture, there are some that are Christ's people, there are some that are in Christ, and there are some that are out of Christ. The hymn writer, we sing it often, Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. And so we go back to my illustration where I stole all that money. Well, if the judge puts me back in jail just simply because I don't believe what he's telling me is true, then he is unjust. He's going against his own word because he told my rich relative that I didn't know anything about that it was signed off on and cleared. And Derek is free to go. And so the judge can't put me back in jail. To do so is unjust. And so if Christ has paid the penalty for all man's sins, then for God to send anyone to hell is unjust. And it makes whatever Christ did false. And so it raises that question. Did Christ come to save men from their sins? Or did Christ come simply to make man savable? And you see, the Arminian perspective is that the work of Jesus Christ merely makes man savable. That's all Christ did. He just made man savable. And now the ball's in your court. It is up to you to believe. But yet, we read the scriptures, and the scriptures teach us that Christ actually came to save.
Christ did not came to secure a possibility. Christ came to sure to to assure an actuality. Because when it was said of Christ that his name would be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And in Luke 19.10, when Christ himself says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And when Paul says that we have redemption, not that we might have it, but that we have redemption, then what Christ came to do, Christ accomplished. Christ fulfilled. And the objects of his redemption are secure. The objects of his redemption will be brought in. You see, Adam represented everyone who was in him. And so when Adam sinned, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned because all men were in Adam. But Christ represents those who are his. Even the Old Testament sacrificial system illustrates this and makes it clear. We don't necessarily pay so much attention to that day of atonement and we don't, I mean, we don't celebrate that as a a holiday. We don't set that aside. We don't follow a calendar that way. But when you look in Leviticus 16 at that day of atonement, most of the time when we talk about it, we focus on the, the two goats and one's the scapegoat and the different rituals and things that were going on there. But one of the things that it's important for us to not overlook is that when that high priest went into that most holy place, he was wearing a breastplate. And on that breastplate were 12 stones. And each of those stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And that high priest then represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The high priest represented the people of God. And so when that high priest went into that most holy place with the blood in the bowl and the hyssop to sprinkle on the mercy seat, he wasn't representing the Philistines. He wasn't representing the Egyptians. He wasn't representing the whatever ites, Hivites, Jebusites, whatever. He wasn't representing any of those people. He was representing his people, those that he represented. And when Christ died, Christ was representing a people. We refer to those people as the elect. And so we say just very simply and very clearly, it is the elect that are the objects of his redemption. Now, who in the world are they? I don't know. And neither do you. I know I'm one of them. And I pray and I hope you are. But how can we know? Well, we can know who those people are because the Bible tells us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've called upon the name of the Lord, you're one of his. You are one who is the object of his redemption. You are the one that the father gave to the son. You are one that belongs to Christ. You are one of those ones that in Matthew one twenty one God was talking about when he said he shall save his people. You're, you're part of that group of people. It's humbling when you stop to consider who it is that Christ died to redeem. When you look at the sin in your own heart, when you look at what's there, why in the world? Why in the world me?
But praise the Lord, it was me that the Lord set his love upon. The angels fell, but God didn't so much as lift a finger to even provide the possibility of redemption for them. Satan, we're told, if we understand the passage right, Satan, we're told, was a glorious angel. But he was cast away. No redemption, no hope of redemption. But when man sinned, when those created in the image of God sinned, God sent his only begotten son to redeem them. This is the object. You are the object of God's redemption. But then one last thing, and that is the source of redemption. And this should be rather obvious from the text. The end of verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. It is the grace of God that there even is redemption. As I just said, the angels sinned and God didn't so much as lift a finger to save them. When Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, theoretically, God could have just started all over. Said, okay, fine, off with you. Again. But no, he had already entered into a covenant with Adam. And God can't break covenants. And so it's gracious, it's merciful that there is a plan, there is an offer of redemption. And so the riches of his grace, that's the source of this redemption, the riches of the grace of God. We have full redemption. You're not saved partway. You're not partly redeemed to, to finish up redemption later. Um, last night, we had uh, a meeting for the mission team. And one of the things we've been talking about is the fact that many that we're going to run into in Maine, if they have any previous religious experience, just because of the area, it's more than likely going to be Roman Catholic. And so we have talked about some things and... Um, different methodologies and, and things specifically evangelizing Roman Catholics. And last night in our Zoom meeting, one of the things came up about purgatory. Well, what is purgatory to the Roman Catholic mind but the simple fact that Jesus has not done enough? Jesus did enough to keep you from hell, but he didn't do quite enough to get you all the way to heaven. And so you don't go to hell, you go to this other place. And in that other place, you contribute, you do, you continue to, to somehow make up the gap. And hopefully somebody that's still back there will give enough money to the church so that the Pope can bequeath to you out of the treasury of merit works of super irrigation so that you too can get all the way to heaven. Because Jesus didn't do enough to get you all the way to heaven. Jesus, according to that line of thinking, only provided a partial redemption. But that's not what the Bible tells us. Paul doesn't say here in whom we have most of our redemption through Christ Jesus. No, we have, we're redeemed. We're done. It's finished. 
All of our sins have been forgiven. There's nothing left for us to pay. That's part of what he says here in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins through faith in his blood. According, sorry, according to the riches of his grace, what he says there. So all of our sins are done. And so when Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. What was finished? Well, what was finished was the stated purpose that we have in Scripture of what he came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. That was the mission. That was the job. And so he did it. And he said, it's finished. He didn't say it's half done. It was finished. To Telestine. The work that he had come came to do, our Redeemer completed. Christ actually accomplished the full redemption of all his believing people. And tonight at the Lord's table, that's what we're here to celebrate. When Christ gave this table to his disciples, he said, This do in remembrance of me. Yes, we remember his life. Yes, we remember him actively obeying the law on our behalf. We remember his miracles. We remember his teaching. We remember all of that. But that's not really the full focus of what he was talking about when he said, this do in remembrance of me. Because what he had shown them was the breaking of bread. The the breaking. And my body is broken for you. Here's the cup of New Testament in my blood that was shed for you. That is what we remember. We're coming to focus our mind and our attention on that redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Maybe someone here tonight is not redeemed. You've never trusted Christ. Well, it's not too late. As long as you're drawing breath on this side of eternity, you can trust Christ. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And may those of us this evening who are redeemed enjoy ourselves at the Lord's table, remembering that rich grace uh, that he has shed upon us. Amen.